Before we dive into Hebrews chapter 7, let's first remember the letter was written primarily to Jewish men and women who were facing great persecution because they had professed faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. They were facing great persecution. So this is the purpose for which Hebrews is written. And remember, I've said this the last couple of weeks, it's primarily because of chapter, chapter 6 and 7 that people just want to shy away from the book of Hebrews. They don't want to get tangled up in it because it's, it seems to entangle people. But that's where the, the good stuff is. So the reason behind this, they're facing great persecution. The purpose of, of the author was to persuade these people in this church not to revert back to rituals of the old covenant under Moses. And why would they be pressured to revert back? Because of the pressure. The incredible pressure that they were under culturally to revert back. And so the temptation to seek safety and shelter beneath the legal and cultural umbrella of Judaism was very powerful. Every moment of every day, there was pressure on these people. All they had to do was forget all this Christianity stuff, deny this Jesus as Messiah stuff. Let's just go back to practicing Judaism and you'll be accepted. You'll, your, the persecution will go away. Your family will take you back. You'll get your job back. You won't be financially persecuted. You won't fear for your life. All your problems essentially will go away if you'll just deny Christ and go back to Judaism, which is the, you know, the standard cultural practice of the day. And so this book is going head on into this situation and saying, no, we're not going to do this. There's reasons why, and these are the reasons you need to consider, and that's what we've been studying through. So... Uh, the author of Hebrews is committed to and convincing them that they would be spiritually insane to return to their former ways. They'd be spiritually insane. If you think about how Jesus has been propped up in these first chapters and all these magnificent characteristics of who He is and what He came to do, all of that has been to just fill their hearts with desire to, to persevere and to continue on and to... Embrace all the things that God has in store for them. So this is why there's this overarching theme of the book of Hebrews, which is Jesus is better. That's why we've called this infinitely better. Because He is infinitely better than anything else. Which is easy to say when you sit in ease and comfort and you're not in persecution and you know, nobody's threatening your life and you're not losing your job and nobody tried to stop you from coming to church tonight. I'm sure that none of you got blackballed from your family because you came to church tonight. Although, my family would probably blackball me, but that's why I live 1,500 miles away from them. But, it's hard for us to... to get ourselves in this mindset. We really have to, every week, like in some way, I try to challenge you to just think through this and realize, you know, 
what is going on as we're studying these words and why they're written and why has God given them to us so that we can relate to these purposes. So here's some things that we've seen so far. We've seen that Jesus is better and more complete than the revelation through the Old Testament prophets. He's better and more complete. So He's better in every way, more useful, more practical, superior than the revelation through the Old Testament prophets. We saw that in chapter 1. We also see that Jesus is better than the angels. That was chapter 1. All the way to chapter 2, verse 18. Better than the angels. Then in chapter 3, what do we talk about? Jesus is better than, remember, uh, Ray taught on this, and then Matt taught on this. Moses, we were on this for several weeks. He's better than Moses, chapter 3. Then as we moved into chapter 4, Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is better than Joshua. Then when we got to chapter 5, we got a little glimpse. Some of you will remember, we got a little glimpse of what happens in chapter 7. But So we're introduced to this topic in chapter 5, and then all of 6... Well, the end of five and then all of six is addressing this and now it's come back. And so why did we take a breather? What are are we talking about? Remember back in chapter five, we were introduced to the, we turned our attention to the high priest and the fact that Jesus is better than Aaron. And so we had a conversation about Melchizedek. You remember that? So chapter 5, we're introduced to Melchizedek, but then what happened? Then if you remember, I taught on Melchizedek, and then the next week, Pastor Matt taught, and he taught about uh, spiritual immaturity and how they weren't ready for meat, but they were, but the, the hearers were, there were too many of them focused on the milk, so they were spiritually immature. And then... Uh, In chapter 6, we dealt with eternal security. So there was confusion over salvation and eternal security, and there was spiritual immaturity. And those two things had to be dealt with in order to come back and deal with this issue of the high priest. And so as we start to move into this tonight, you'll realize over the tonight and the next couple of weeks, This is some in-depth stuff. And so you can understand why Hebrews had to deal with those issues. Because if you're you're confused about salvation and the security of the believer, you're going to have a problem trying to discern what's going on with the high priest. The other thing is is that if you're spiritually immature, well, it's just going to be a disaster. So those things had to be dealt with. So that's why there's been a chapter and a half break. All right, let's read Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek. So it's almost like we're just continuing what we started in chapter 5, but yet we've had all these conversations in the middle. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these, are also, uh, these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one who is, uh, whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now when you read that, it may not just perfectly make sense to you as you're reading it, but here's what would perfectly make sense to you. Something very intentional is trying to be communicated here. Because you can see where all these little details are being woven into what's being said so that there's very, uh, it's very intentional in making sure that we understand what's being said. Now, I'm not going to uh, jump into everything that's in this text tonight because if I do, I'll run into what comes next week and what comes the next week. So I have to just be patient and we have to just unravel this one step at a time. Okay? So, let's start thinking about what's going on here. First of all, we need to, go, we need to be reminded about the high priest because this isn't something that we would normally talk about. It's not something we normally deal with. We don't live in a... In a situation where we talk about the high priest. So the high priest was an individual appointed to mediate on behalf of other men and women. So this would be some review from chapter 5. It's a mediator. The high priest is a mediator. So Moses functioned as a priest when the people of uh, children of Israel would get in trouble. They'd go to Moses. He'd go to God for them. And then and intercede on their behalf. He was functioning as a priest. It's a mediator. Now, this high priest, he, his assignment was to offer sacrifices for sin, making it possible for others to get to God. Apart from this priestly function, the separation, the void between sinful man and a holy God is, cannot be scaled. You can't cross it. There must be this priestly function. It's the only way. Otherwise, it's just instantaneous death. There's no hope for anybody to get to God. Now, not just anyone could serve as the priest in the Old Testament. Not anyone could do this. There were very specific guidelines. So remember, one entire tribe... Levi was dedicated to the priesthood. So the Levites were the priests. But 
Not everyone in the tribe of Levi was qualified. So what was the determining factor? You're a Levite. What determined as a Levite whether or not you could serve as a priest, as the high priest? You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. So you had to be of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. And here's the thing. You couldn't just say you were a descendant of Aaron. You had to prove you were a descendant of Aaron. I mean, it was a big deal. And so only those who were verifiably, undeniably direct descendants of Aaron could serve as the high priest. Now, we have to remember how central and all-consuming the Old Testament priesthood was to the lives of the first century Jewish men and women. I would say to you that there was really not a day that went by that they didn't think about the high priest, that the high priest wasn't on their mind, that the function of the high priest, because everything that they did revolved around that. The priesthood was so central to everything about them, it was truly all-consuming. Because, if you think about it, everything that they knew about God and their relationship to Him and how they could be forgiven of their sin was based on the priestly system of the Old Covenant. You see, in the same way that, you know... you. There, I can't preach a sermon without talking about Jesus. It really doesn't matter where the text is. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything spiritually without thinking about the priesthood because the priesthood functioned as you couldn't... Everything about your relationship was built around the priesthood. Everything about your capacity to receive forgiveness was built around the priesthood. And here's the thing, because you have to remember that an old covenant believer didn't have peace like we understand peace. You didn't lay your head down at the end of the day and just, you know, sing Jesus loves me, this I know, and go wistfully off to sleep. You didn't do that because you didn't know. You didn't know if, if, if the end came while you were asleep, whether you'd go to heaven or hell. You didn't know if if what you had done was good enough or not. You didn't know if the sacrifice of the priest had met the standard or not. You never knew. There was never any peace. So you lived always in this, this tension, always in this you know, unresolve of, is everything okay? Am I, you know, am I going to be all right? Was everything good enough? And so not only that, think about the pressure that the people exerted on the priesthood. Because remember, see... This is what I was thinking about yesterday. I was thinking about, you know, um, just the function of a shepherd or a pastor today. So there are certain innate pressures that come with serving as a pastor. But just imagine, well, you know, for me it's painful to even think about this. Imagine how miserable my life would be, how you would make my life miserable, if your salvation, if your forgiveness was dependent upon me. 
Can you imagine the pressure? You see, like if, if, if I started thinking about how bizarre it would get. In other words, I would never be alone. Never. You'd be an, a fool. You'd never let, let me alone. You'd always have people with me. You'd always have people watching me. You'd always have people encouraging me. You'd always have people... I mean, you would, because if I went off the grid, you're doomed. You, can you imagine how crazy this is? So that what I'm getting you to see is, you know, by the time we get to Jesus, the, the high priest had gotten so perverted and corrupt and jacked up, especially through the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things had just gotten so out of whack. But you can't use that concept of, of the, the priesthood to understand the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Listen, when a, when a, when a new priest was brought in, when a new high priest was, was elected, Man, that was one big deal. Because look at what hangs in the balance of who that is. And so this was everything about their relationship to him. So here comes, now now I want you to move into Hebrews with me now. So in that context comes these psychomaniac Christians who turned the priesthood upside down. For, forget, I mean, there, I could give you a million ways in which Jesus was so radical and confrontational, but just imagine moms and dads in the room. You're a Jew in the Old Testament and your son or daughter comes home and says, guess what? I'm following Jesus. He's the Messiah. It's the end of your world. It's a disaster. It's like some Muslim kid coming home and telling his parents. So what you got to realize is, is that here comes this radically life-altering message of Christianity which declares the Old Testament priesthood was a foreshadowing of something better and greater. Now just think about that. Oh, mom and dad, listen, you got this whole priesthood thing wrong. That's just a shadow of something better and greater. A superior priesthood has now come, that of Jesus of Nazareth. You see what's hanging here? Like, there's no room for error. There's no room for error. You can't get this wrong. Everything is hinging on this priesthood issue. And so you've got this little church of all these, you know, vagabond new believers and they're getting pummeled from every direction. And this is written to them to say, now listen, listen, you got to hear what I'm telling you. Jesus is infinitely better, infinitely better.
than the old way of thinking. No matter how hot the fire gets, it's worth it. It's so worth it. It's not even, there's no comparison. So this is the, the pressure that all this Melchizedek talk comes up around. So here's the question. How can Jesus be a high priest since he's a member of the tribe of Judah? The, the first problem with Jesus being the high priest is he can't. He's not a Levite and he's not a descendant of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah and his lineage goes through David. Remember? So we got a problem. So the answer is, now I, I, you know, I clued you in on all this back in chapter 5, but just in a very surface way. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to really jump deeply into this. So how is this possible? Well, because he's of the order of Melchizedek, which is greater than the order of Aaron. So what God has done is, is he is very intentionally, and I would say, you know, uh, not, not in a secret way, but just it was just unnoticed. It was just missed. Most people just miss this. this is, but if you, if you ever get, go through a, these seasons where uh, or maybe, you know, you've been in one recently or maybe you're in one tonight or where you just, you know, there's things that cause you to struggle with the, the perfection and the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, that is, how do, are we sure that what we have is really God's Word? Or maybe you're witnessing or, or having conversations with somebody who's doubting the Bible. Well, you came on the right night because this will bless your heart right here. Okay? It's greater than the order of Aaron. Now, who is Melchizedek? So remember, Melchizedek shows up in one little place in Genesis 14. So this is 2,000 years before Christ, right? After his return from the defeat of that place, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him, meaning Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven on earth, heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Now, Abraham has just returned back from battle, victorious. And Abraham allows Melchizedek to bless him. And then he gave him a tenth of the spoils that he brought back from war. So this just comes out of nowhere. You're just going through Genesis 14 and 
reading along the story and then Abraham's fighting these battles and he's dealing with Lot and all this chaos is going on with Sodom and Gomorrah and all that. And then all of a sudden in the midst of all that, there's these couple of verses and then it just goes right back into the story again. So that's 2,000 years before Christ, right? So there's now not another... Melchizedek is never mentioned again for 1,000 years. Not 100 years. Not 200 years. 1,000 years go by. Okay? You with me? 1,000 years. 1,000 years later comes Psalm 110 where God declares that He's going to do something new. Now, Psalm 110 is a psalm written by David. And I would encourage you to maybe go home and read the psalm. It's amazing. I don't have time to do it all justice, but it's fantastic. And so in this beautiful psalm, his intention was to bring into history God's being a priest like Melchizedek that Melchizedek, who would be both a priest and a king. See, this would be new. There's, that's never happened before. And so in the psalm, his, his priesthood would last forever and he would be appointed directly by God. And so David starts out, you know, leading up to this moment where he gets to verse 4. And so talking about all this, he says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, capital Y-U, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. So a thousand years pass, and then the, the next time that the name appears, the only other place, it's in Scripture. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then the New Testament. A thousand years pass, and then David comes along and says, you know, God has made up His mind He's going to do this, and He's not going to change His mind. So you need to just come to grips with the fact that you're going to be a priest by the order of Melchizedek forever. And that's just the way that's going to be. And then a thousand years go by. Is that not crazy? And so here we go, Hebrews 7. So verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." I mean, what? So you're thinking, you're reading through the New Testament, you get to this and you go, now wait a second. 
So maybe you get a concordance out or you do some kind of word search and you go, now, who is Melchizedek? So, so you go back and you find that Melchizedek is, is mentioned in Genesis 14. And then nowhere else all the way until Psalm 110. And then we get to the New Testament and you go. And now the writer of Hebrews is just reached back 2,000 years and said, you know, there's a little place in the book of Genesis that everybody just whizzes on by and doesn't pay any attention to, but it's important. And this Melchizedek, who is the king and who functions in this way and who is this person? And believe me, what you do not want to do is go home and get on the computer and Google who is Melchizedek. That would be a tragic error on your part. You might as well type in pleasefillmymindwithheresy.com because that's what you're going to get. There is every lunatic, psychopath under the sun out there with some bizarre ideas about Melchizedek. I'll just talk to you for a second about a couple of these things. Well, you're going to, there's people out there that are going to contend. I mean, these, these aren't the people way out on the fringe. I'm just talking about mainstream. I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, commentators, liberal, but commentators, who will try to say that and make this big case that Melchizedek is an angel. Well, that's not going to fly for a number of reasons. Because first of all, in, back in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about how uh, every high priest is, is uh, chosen from among men. Uh, but even if you don't make that connection, there's all sorts of other problems because he is clearly functioning as a king of a place called Salem, which is commonly which is a place, it's commonly a word used to describe Jerusalem, but nonetheless, it's a place. He comes out, he's got bread and wine. In other words, this isn't an angel. This is clearly not an angel. So then you've got people who, well, they go, okay, I can't really contend that he's an angel, but somehow they've determined that it's Shem, the son of Noah. And they got all these, and, and then they start making this big case about, you know, and, and I'm telling you, they've written volumes about how this is Shem. But the problem with that is, is that in Genesis chapter 11, you have the genealogy of Shem, right? And what did the writer of Hebrews say when I read you the whole text about Melchizedek? He has no father, mother, and no genealogy. So he can't be Shem. Can't be. Melchizedek's the only person that you're going to find in the Old Testament that doesn't have a... There's no genealogy. So he can't be Shem. So that's not going to work. So then, what's the next... I mean, you only really have... If you're, if you're trying to at least be somewhat logical, angel, Shem... Jesus. It's, it's pre-incarnate Jesus. So it's the angel of the Lord. You know, it's a theophany. Jesus is going to show up pre-incarnate, and this, this is Jesus. Well, uh, no, because look at verse 3 very closely. 
No, for a lot of reasons, but the most obvious reason is, you notice in verse 3 it says that he resembles. So you might want to underline that word resembles or put a circle around it. You see, the Bible doesn't say that he is the Son of God or it says he is like the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. So he's not the Son of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't say he resembles the Son of God, right? Right. So it's not, So he's not an angel. He's not some character like Shem, and it's not the Son of God. So everything, if you're thoughtful and you just look at this, you'll see that everything points to Melchizedek being a genuine human being, a literal historical man who served as a king of a literal historical city called Salem. Now, remember that the way to understand Melchizedek and his purpose is, is that he's a forerunner. He's a shadow, right? So therefore, what he symbolized, Christ realized. Christ is the fulfillment of what Melchizedek is a shadow of, a precursor. A first fruit, a down payment, however you want to look at it. So let's look at a couple examples. And believe me, there are way more than this. I'm just going to give you a couple because we're going to get into some of the other examples in the weeks to come. But let's look at a couple examples. For example, Melchizedek was a priest king. Something which no Levitical priest could ever be. You see, a Levite could never be a king, and a king couldn't be a Levite. You couldn't be a priest and a king. I mean, those are two utterly, completely different functions. So only specific people could be a priest, and priests had to be priests. They couldn't be other things. At least not and be right with God. Be obedient to the commands. So... He's a priest king, yet you see there from Revelation 19, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. Melchizedek, the name means, which you don't need to look it up because the writer of Hebrews tells us, king of righteousness. Righteousness. So the word Melchizedek is a combination word of two Hebrew words, king of righteousness. And so you you have the king of righteousness and then he is also the literal king of a place called Salem. And the word Salem means peace, right? So you have the king of righteousness and the king of peace, which is basically exactly what we don't have to figure this out because the writer of Hebrews told us this. So you've got the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now, interesting There's tons of other places. I just gave you a couple. For example, an Old Testament example, there's a beautiful example in Isaiah. But I used uh, Psalm 85. It says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Hmm. What about Romans chapter 5, verse 1? If you want a New Testament example. Therefore, since we have been justified, which means to be declared 
Righteous, right? It's a legal term that means not guilty. So you've been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. So what happens? You don't get peace and then righteousness, do you? You get righteousness and then peace. Peace only comes after righteousness. It has to go in that order. It can't be reversed, right? So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. So he's functioning in a way that no normal uh, descendant of Aaron, no Levitical priest could function as. You couldn't do that. But yet he is. And so he's bringing together these two things that Scripture is constantly bringing together and showing us that Jesus, so in the Old Testament, talks about Jesus. It talks about Him as bringing in righteousness and then which leads to us receiving peace. And then when the New Testament talks about Jesus and His function, I mean, Paul's just breaking down theological uh, doctrine for us in Romans chapter 5. He tells us, We've been declared righteous and therefore we receive peace. Just amazing how these things just are coming together for us so that we can say, oh, all right. And not only that, all these pieces are separated by a thousand years in between and yet they all perfectly fit together like just an absolutely perfect Perfect fit. So Christ then is superior to Aaron because Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. You see, Christ and Aaron are the priests of the order of Melchizedek and, and Abraham. You see, so how this is all sort starting to pull apart for us now, we can see what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell this church that's under all this pressure. And you can see that if they were spiritually immature, and certainly when we get to the end of this tonight, you'll realize that if they were uh, confused about salvation or their eternal security, it'd be a disaster. You can't have this conversation about Melchizedek. They'd be totally lost. All right, now look at what happens. We get to verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. Now this is, these are converted Jews. So Abraham, I mean, think of the pedestal Abraham's on. So he's saying, Abraham, the patriarch. Abraham, you know, you're Abraham. Abraham, that Abraham. So he gives a tenth of the spoils to and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he's, he's saying, you see how different this is than what's, normally going on in the Old Covenant? You see how different this is? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's never the other way around, is it? No. It can only be one way. 
The inferior is always receiving the blessing of the superior. You can't have the, the child never blesses, the, puts the blessing on the father. The father puts the blessing on the child, right? The peasant doesn't bless the king or the priest. The priest blesses the peasant, so on and so forth. It has to go in that direction. So in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, remember, whose? His brothers paid tithes through Abraham. So the, the Levitical priest would receive the tithes of his brothers and what? And then he also would have to give a tithe. He wasn't immune. For he was still, when all this was going on with Melchizedek, where was Levi? He was still in the loins of his ancestor. In other words, where was Levi? There was no such thing as the tribe of Levi in Genesis 14, was there? No, Levi hadn't even been conceived of. Nobody even knew Levi was on the horizon or coming. And yet God has laid this out before any... So no one could have understood this until you got into the Levitical system. Then you could look back to Genesis 14 and go, oh, I figured that out. But listen, there's, at the time that this is going on with Abraham, if you didn't have access to the information you have access to tonight, you wouldn't have any idea what was going on. It wouldn't make any sense. But now it's all starting to come together. The picture's starting to become clear. All right, so let me give you a couple things to think about. So Abraham... He paid tithes to Melchizedek. It wasn't the other way around. You see, who a person gives their tithe to is important, right? You can't just give 10% to any random person you want and then go, well, I tithe. It does, that doesn't work, does it? No. Some of you are like, what? I can't do that? No. You can't go to the mall and give 10% to Belk and then go, well, that was my tithe. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You see, the fact that Melchizedek was the recipient of the tithes from Abraham proves that he's superior, right? So, the fact that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek proves that his priesthood is superior to that of Aaron. Now, I'm just imagining people hearing this for the first time and they're, they're, and they're going, you know, as the light bulbs are coming on, they're not only going, what? Oh, oh, and they're getting this, but then they're also thinking at the same time, of how are they going to explain this to their loved ones or their family members or their so they're going, I, I've got to tell, I got to tell my parents about this. I got to tell my brothers and sisters about this. I've got to tell, you know, people that I love and care about about this. That Jesus is superior, and here's why. You remember that verse in, in Genesis 14? Now look, you know what that means? All right, here's number two. Not only was the tithe an issue, but it was also Melchizedek who 
blessed Abraham, not the other way around, verses 6 and 7. So when the writer of Hebrews says in verse 7 that the inferior blessed the superior, that's for a reason. That's important information. Thus, Melchizedek is the superior because he blessed Abraham, the inferior. So now, let's pull some conclusions out of this. I mean, we, there's so much to swim in the next couple of weeks. It's just wonderful. But we can just kind of take a breath and then try to conclude some of these thoughts. Now, what does Jesus being... I mean, because this is really the question for, for you. This is the question you should be asking. What does Jesus being my high priest have to do with my life or my fears or my struggles or my battle with sin and shame? I mean, that's really the question. I mean, okay, great. So you've took me on this big, you know, historical journey. And now we've all learned this theological stuff. And la-ti-da. What difference is it going to make tomorrow? What is the real rubber meets the road? I mean, how is this going to affect all these things? Well, the difference is going to make, it's going to make, it's everything. I mean, everything. This is an earth-shattering, life-changing, mind-blowing moment for us to come to this place of realization. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to get to what I think is the central verse of the entire book of Hebrews. I think the entire book of Hebrews could be summed up by... uh, the, this one verse, verse 25 of this chapter, but it's for sure, you might debate that, but it is 100% for sure the, the summation of this entire chapter. It's the primary point of chapter 7. The primary point is going to be made two weeks from now when we come to these verses. Now let's look at these verses. Verse 23 sets the context. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now here's the central verse. Consequently, which is the clue to why it's the central verse. Therefore, or hence, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. I would for sure underline and highlight and circle verse 25. That is the central statement of everything that is going on in the book of Hebrews. That is the takeaway of all takeaways. And all of that is predicated on and would be useless information if you didn't know about the high priest in Melchizedek. Right? What I just read to you would be meaningless if you didn't know about who the high priest is, what his function is, how Jesus is a better high priest, and how he's of the order of Melchizedek. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't mean anything. 
So this means that our salvation is as secure as Christ's indestructible, never-ending priesthood is. You see, the, 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 the linchpin that is, that is welded the door shut on our eternal security, that has given us such utter confidence in our, our position in Christ, in salvation, is who, who our high priest is. We're just like they were in the Old Testament, except for instead of you worrying about who the high priest is and following him around all the time and making sure he doesn't do what he's not supposed to do and worrying about whether it was good enough, you can go home tonight and put your head down and and go to sleep peacefully because your high priest isn't a man. It's Jesus. And that's all, I mean, your peace is is built on that bedrock foundation. You remove that truth from your theology and you're going to collapse. You know why? Because if all you have, which so many people fit into this category, all they have is a theology that contains a God who had a son who gave him to hang on a cross and die for the forgiveness of sin. But there's no ongoing ministry. And this is where you would conclude that you would therefore lose your salvation because we all know what happens after... The, the moment comes, the realization that Jesus died for our sin and so we confess Him as our Lord and our sin is forgiven and then we go right out and how long does it take us to start building up a debt again? Zero time. Because we're sinners. And so how do we, how do we jump to this? You can't just go, well, no, we just believe that it was all of our, it was all of our sin, past, present, and future. Well, well really? Well, well where, do you, where do you get that from? you got to validate that. you got to back that up. you got to have something to... You can't just say that because you want it to be true. So we have this security because of this indestructible priesthood. Now, let's, let, me, let me just give you a couple examples. Remember Luke 22? So Jesus says to Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you will strengthen your brothers. So Jesus says to Peter, well, he says to all the disciples, and then he turns and looks at Peter and says, I prayed for you. This, then if you just keep reading this, it's a, he starts talking about how you're going to deny me three times and all this is going to happen. And Jesus says, so I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you. Or you could read John 17 where Jesus intercedes. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus prays for Peter. And what happens because Jesus prays for him? Now anything that Jesus wants to happen can happen, right? But what does happen? Does Jesus remove the Peter's mistakes? Negative. What does Jesus do? Jesus secures his faith so that even in 
his sinfulness, even in his denial, even in his frailty and his humanity, what happens? That he will not fall and that he will yet be restored and used as a further witness for the glory of God. So you're starting to get a little excited tonight that Jesus is interceding on your behalf and what that might look like. And so how many times do you think, oh, um, you know, things aren't going right and this isn't going right. I've been praying about this and God's not answering my prayer. Hmm, okay. You got some uh, scripture to back that up? Hmm? You don't think I'm going to get off this soapbox anytime soon, do you? I'm going to drill and drill and drill. So he's not doing what you want him to do. So, so was, did Jesus faithfully pray and protect Peter? Yes. Did Peter go through hardship? Yes. Did the hardship doom Peter? No. Was Peter used? Isn't it beautiful how we're studying all this in Acts and talking about this in Hebrews? And then what happened to Peter? Was he used as a witness to others? Mm-hmm. Oh. So you mean that maybe in the midst of your sickness, maybe in the midst of your crisis at work, maybe in the midst of your wayward children, maybe in the midst of your troubled marriage, maybe in the midst of your hardship with your relationship with your parents, maybe in the midst of your, you fill in the blank, whatever problems you're having tonight, maybe, possibly, could it be possible that in the midst of all that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf because you are His child and that's what He does for His children. As you're going through this and the whole time we're whining that God's not answering our prayer, He absolutely, positively hears your prayers and moves in your life and is with you and will never leave you or forsake you. And all of His promises are absolutely rock solid. Yeah. See, the reason that we have assurance that our sin will never cut us off from God is because Christ Himself is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. He's pouring out on us and into us whatever strength we need to continue in Him for everlasting life. In other words, have you ever thought about the fact that when somebody says, well, God does say that He'll never leave us or forsake us. Have you ever stopped to just think for a second and go, but what does that mean? In other words... There are different levels of being with, right? In other words, God may be with you, but if He's with you and He's inactive, then what good is that? My point is, the only thing that makes Him being with you valuable is what He's doing while He's with you, right? And what is He doing? How is He with you? He's interceding for you. He's doing the greatest thing He could do. There's no better thing He could do. No better thing. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Continuously. When you don't deserve it. When you don't ask for it. When you don't know you need it. Like how 
Could it get any better than that? Oh, I know how. Romans chapter 8. Maybe that's better. So, you know, Paul, I mean, I, I didn't have room or I could have just put the whole chapter here and then my head would explode because if I read though, it's just so good you can't even stand it. But we'll just look from verse 31 following. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, then who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't know because I want what I want. I don't want what he wants. I want what I want. He doesn't, he's not hearing me. He's not answering me. He's not, come on. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who? It is God who justifies, who makes righteous. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Oh my goodness. So, Jesus, our great high priest, to the weary and worn out, he would say, draw near to God through Jesus Christ, that you might find strength to endure. To the shame-filled and downtrodden, he would say, draw near, draw near to God through Jesus Christ, that you may, he may cleanse you of all guilt and turn your shame into shouts of joy. To the brokenhearted whose dreams and desires never seem to come to pass, draw near to God through Jesus, that he may fill your heart with his presence and satisfy your heart's deepest desires. To those who have lost hope, he would say, draw near to God through Jesus Christ, that he may restore your hope and his promises and his purposes for your life. To those who are broken and weak in body, draw near to God through Jesus Christ that He may touch your physical frame with His healing power. To those who are filled with anxiety and worry about things they can't control, draw near to God through Jesus Christ that He might impart His peace that passes all understanding. To those who have been deeply wounded or abused, draw near to God through Jesus Christ to find a friend who can be trusted and who can heal those wounds and love you in a way that your heart was meant to be loved. To anyone who has believed the lie that nothing will ever change or that life is simply isn't worth living, draw near to God through Jesus Christ who makes all things new. To anyone who struggles with, you fill in the blank. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ and find the ultimate high priest who knows your pain and understands your problem and stands ready and able to help you. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now. Right now. You see, because he's not a human priest. He's a great high priest. And he never ceases, he never ends. There's no beginning or end to his ministry. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Let this settle into your hearts tonight. It's not about how you feel. It's about what the Bible says. Okay, let's pray. Father, we can only say, wow.